Welcome to the Waymaker Fireside Chat Podcast, where our purpose is to grow your life and change the world. In this episode, we sit down with Maryland Governor Candidate Wes Moore. Lewis Carr is the founder of Waymaker, the Lewis Carr Internship Foundation, the Blueprint Men's Summit, president of media sales at BET Networks, and author of Dirty Little Secrets. Wes Moore is an author, entrepreneur, television producer, United States Army veteran, the former CEO of the Robin Hood Foundation, and the Democratic candidate for the governor of Maryland. Today, he'll be discussing what inspired him to declare candidacy and what he aims to accomplish if elected. Let's get started. Hi, I'm Lewis Carr, founder of Waymaker, and welcome to the Waymaker Fireside Chat. These chats are to educate, motivate, and inspire our community to live their best life in order to improve everything around them. And today's guest is Wes Moore, author and candidate for governor of the great state of Maryland. Welcome, Wes. It's so good to be with you, brother. It was uh, it's it's actually it's it's an honor to be with you. Uh, I admire you deeply, and and I'm excited to be part of the uh, part of the community. So this is great. Well, thank you, thank you for uh, allowing us to uh, introduce you to the Waymaker community, and uh, we're excited about what you have to say today. So, Wes, let's just jump right into it. How and why did you decide to run for government? You had a good job, all right? <laughs> you had a good job. You, you were known. Uh, you, you wrote a great book. Why did you decide that you wanted to do this heavy lift? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, honestly, it, it first started off with the fact that the, the, the present and the future of the state, it just, it's very personal to me. You know, I'm a, you know, I was, I was born here. I was, I, I came of age here. I, I uh, you know, I've had some of my most amazing and traumatic memories here. Uh, you know, I, I met my wife here. We, we, we fell in love and we're raising our kids here. Right. So, so this, so the state of Maryland is a very personal place for me. Um, and I also know that there is no reason for our state to be so inequitable. When you consider the fact that we're the wealthiest state inside this country and, uh, you know, this is a place where literally some of the some of the greatest technology companies in the world are being built right here in the state of Maryland. Yet we have children who don't have Wi-Fi and broadband. Right. We have some of the greatest medical institutions in the world. People literally travel from around the globe to come to the state of Maryland to get treated. And we have people who live down the street from those medical facilities who cannot afford to get treated in them. And, and I remember having this conversation about, about, you know, economic growth and economic mobility and how do we create mechanisms for economic mobility for everybody. And um, I was having a conversation with a, a, a colleague of mine when I was CEO of the Robin Hood Foundation. And one of, the, one of the things we did there was we built this initiative called 90 to Zero, which focused on the racial wealth gap, where you look at even in the state of Maryland, there's an eight to one racial wealth gap in the state of Maryland. And I told one of my colleagues that I was getting ready to leave Robinhood. I said, I think it's time for me to, to for me to after after almost five years of being the CEO, it's time to step down. And I think I'm going to run for governor of my home state. And I said, one of the issues I want to work on are things like economic growth and, and erasing the wealth gap. And he said to me, he's like, but you're working on it already. You know, you're we have we you built a big platform called 90 to zero a whole organization uh, as a side entity for Robinhood that's focused on this issue why would you leave to go 
work on this to go run for governor? And my answer really was, you know, why do you think the issue exists in the first place? Right. There are policies that continue to create mechanisms and barriers for economic growth and economic opportunity. And so until we can address those barriers, until we can address those policies, we will find ourselves cleaning up the debris that comes from broken policies. And so that's why I decided it's time to actually, uh, you know, take the experience that we've had, both the lived and the professional experience, to now start addressing the structural challenges that our communities continue to face. Wow. So how did your experience at Robin Hood and, you know, being an author of this book that everybody knows now, <laughs> The Other West More, how did that impact your thinking to run for governor? Because I'm like that other guy. You were already doing some of these things to sort of impact change. Yeah. So yeah. how did that experience motivate you to say, hey, I want to take the next step yeah. and basically say, get in the trenches? You know, it's it's wild, Lewis, because, uh, you know, I've worked with policymakers my whole professional life. I've worked on these issues, right? Whether it was when I was, you know, leading soldiers, I led paratroopers, I was, a, I was a, an army officer and I led, I led a team of paratroopers in Afghanistan with the 82nd Airborne. I came back and I worked with lawmakers in the private sector. I, I built a small, successful small business in Maryland that was focusing on helping students. Uh, who were first first generation students make it to and through college, uh, and then with Robinhood, I had a chance to work every single day with council members and mayors and senators and governors and the executive branch to be able to zero in on how do we work collectively to address these issues. I think the organization that I ran, you're right, with Robinhood. I mean, you know, we raised and allocated just in my time as CEO over six hundred fifty million dollars going towards housing and transportation and education and early childhood and criminal justice reform. And so I've worked with lawmakers and on these issues for my entire adult life. I say, you know, I've been a politician for my whole life. I'm sorry, I've, I've been a public servant for my whole life. I just haven't been a politician. And so now we have a chance to say, okay, with the work that we have, that we have done with Maryland state legislators on fair appraisal values, on, on historically redlined neighborhoods, on on creating, uh, you know, on, on addressing, you know, the Speaker of Maryland, Speaker of the of the House of Maryland, Adrian Jones, last year, put together this groundbreaking uh, uh, initiative called the Black Agenda, about how all, a variety of initiatives and bills will be aligned around a Black Agenda, and I worked with her on it, working with lawmakers on the blueprint for Maryland's future, which was a a a, a truly groundbreaking piece of legislation that was focused on how do we create educational supports for our students that are preparing them for you know the, the the workplace of now and the workplace of the future. I worked on these issues, but I also know that in that time, seeing that work and seeing public change, being, seeing public service from a variety of different perspectives also gave me a different type of a different type of glimpse of why having a strong chief executive that is able to work across sectors, work with the private sector, work with nonprofits, work with philanthropy, work with the legislative branch and the executive branch of government, work with community organizations and work with the people to be able to make big, bold things happen. And that's why I said, you know, when I think about my uh, unique skill set 
and background in this area, and you think about the unique opportunities that the state of Maryland has to be able to be a national leader on everything from transportation assets to affordable housing, to healthcare and education, to criminal justice reform, that we have a chance to actually get some big things done. And I, and I thought we could uh, uniquely add to the conversation. As, as, as you look at your journey and, and look forward, what do you think your biggest challenges are going to be uh, to, you know, really get the seat? What is the biggest challenge you're going to have? Yeah. You know, I, 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 I think about um, I, I think about even my time in, in the military uh, where, you know, I first joined the Army when I was 17 years old. And, uh, and literally, I was too young to sign the paperwork myself. My mother had to sign the paperwork for me. And uh, but I, I say after my teenage years, she was more than happy to sign whatever paperwork <laughs> that she needed to sign <laughs> to get me off. And uh, and I remember our first days of basic. They said something to us that they asked us to live by, and, and I did. It was a mantra, and the mantra was simply this: leave nobody behind. Ever. That if you happen to get one of my people. I will send a battalion in to go get them if I have to. We don't leave people behind. I want that to be the mantra for the state of Maryland. I want us to say we are going to grow and and I will insist that we grow. But we're going to grow inclusively. That we're going to build and I will insist that we build. But we are going to build collectively. We're not going to leave people behind. And I think that the thing that, uh, that you know, one of the, the challenges that I think we had initially was just what about the thesis we're pulling together, that our thesis is that we're not going to leave anybody behind. Our thesis is we are going to focus on economic growth. Our thesis is that the North Star for our state needs to be work, wages, and wealth. And you know what I'm realizing? That most Marylanders think the same thing. And that's one of the things I think has been so exciting about our campaign. That's why our campaign, there's not a single campaign that has the momentum that ours does. Not one. And that is across the board, everything from the number of volunteers that we have to the number of endorsements that we're seeing in members of the Maryland General Assembly to our fundraising numbers. And 73% of our donors were number one in fundraising in the the entire grouping. 73% of our donations are $100 or less. We are building the best grassroots organization in the entire field because we're focusing on the core issues that people care about, on economic growth, on fighting climate change and the inequities in the way we look at how climate injustice shows itself. By being able to uh, by being able to protect families against the current surge of not just COVID, but the aftermath, the economic aftermath of what that's meant for our families. And so I think that many of the things that we saw as 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 challenges of are, are people, you know, will people buy onto the idea and the thesis? I think one of the really inspiring things that we've seen is that the answer is absolutely they are because we're meeting Marylanders where they are. Wes, you know, most African-Americans are Democrats, mm-hmm. but they're becoming weary with the Democratic Party yes. because things are changing fast enough for them. So every election, uh, you got to energize them to get back into it. You've got to put issues up that are really important and intimate to them. How are you going to sort of be unique as a candidate in the Democratic Party yeah. to sort of create change and energy for black communities? It's a great question. 
It's a, it's a great question. And, and honestly, I think that one thing the Democratic Party has to do is that as Democrats, we have to move forward and not take anybody for granted. You know, there is not a there is not a single group that we should just bake in to say, like, oh, we got them. So let's focus on somebody else, because the reality is and, you know, it's just like that with any relationship. Right. It's like that with any friendship. It's like that with any marriage or whatever or, or any partnership. If you take that relationship for granted, that relationship will look elsewhere. Right. People need to feel like they are they are a center. They are a part of how you think about your future. And it is important for the party to continue to remind African-Americans why African-Americans can and should stay loyal uh, loyal to the Democratic Party. And I think about it where where, you know, the, the thing that we have to do as Democrats is we have to keep the main thing the main thing. Right. And what I mean by that is when we're talking, particularly talking to African-American audience, and if we're not talking about economics, I don't know what we're talking about. Right. If we're not talking about work, wages and wealth, if we're not talking about how are we keeping things not just affordable amongst amongst, you know, uh, amongst rising inflation, amongst economic instability. But if we're also not talking about the ability to pass something off to your children besides debt, then I don't know what it is that we're talking about because the black experience in this country and the black experience in the state of Maryland has inherently been a traumatic one, right? By, by its history, by its nature, this has been a traumatic relationship. And, and I think about it where it's both in terms of historical lenses, but it's even in terms of, you know, what we see within our own families. I mean, like, you know, my, my, my father, um, I have two memories of my father. The second memory was when he went to a hospital and his face was unshaven and his clothes were disheveled. And and when he arrived at the hospital, there was assumptions about whether or not he had insurance. When my mom got to the hospital, they asked her questions like, is your husband prone to exaggeration? And he was asked to leave the hospital with the instructions to go home and get some rest. And if it got worse to come back. And he died in front of me five hours later. My father went to the hospital looking for help. And I can't help but think, had he looked differently or presented differently, his treatment would have been different. That's the history that we continue to bear. That's the trauma that we continue to endure. When we think about the things that we have to be able to focus on, to be able to not just attract support from African-Americans as, as a democratic party, but, but, but keep it, but, but continue to know that it's not just about getting it, but it's about protecting it. It's about continuing to fight and attack the issues that have plagued African-American families for so long, that have challenged African-American communities for so long, particularly when you look at the fact that for the state of Maryland, we are one of the most diverse states in the nation. I mean, women make up over 50 percent of our population. Communities of color make up close to 50 percent as well, according to the most recent census data. African-Americans alone are, are over 30 percent African-Americans. And so with this platform that we're building out on, when, with, with, this, with this entity and focusing and zeroing in on economic opportunity, on creating proper pathways for work, on making sure that people are getting paid fair wages for the work that they are doing and making sure that you have a chance to own more than you owe 
and have some mechanism of wealth creation that you can have in your in your, in your family, in your family history, in your family platforms. That is something that we believe is not just right for the state of Maryland, but it's something that's going to continue to remind African-Americans of the need for their involvement and the need for their engagement inside of this race. And, and, and I tell you, it's not lost on me that, you know, the state of Maryland, despite those numbers that we talked about, has never elected an African-American statewide. In fact, this country has only elected two black governors in its history, right? right? Deval Patrick and Doug Wilder. That's it. And so we understand the fact that we are, you know, there's, there's a there's a racing of history that is taking place right now in, the, in this election. Um, but we're also very clear uh, and feel very deeply that if we stay on our thesis and if we stay on our path and this campaign keeps on the pace that it's on right now, uh, you know, we will be able to we will be able to uh, to, again, not just make history, uh, but to be able to address the issues that we're looking to address that have been generational and make some of those challenges history. And that's the point of this. Wes, uh, to your point, Maryland is a very diverse state, uh, but you have a city there called Baltimore mm. that has been struggling for a long time. Yeah. Uh, how are you going to help turn that city around? Yeah. You know, where do you start? What's what's the focus? Uh, you, you've you touched on economics, you touched on jobs, things like that. Is is that the real core issue that turns Maryland around, bringing jobs, bringing industries into that city? Uh, it's a uh, you know, it's interesting. There was a there was a song by uh, by Nina Simone, uh, and uh, it, it was uh, from a, from a song show called Baltimore. And, and the chorus uh, was, uh, I don't know if you remember, the chorus was, Oh, Baltimore, ain't it hard just to live? Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful song. Um, and the amazing and the ironic thing about it was that that song was actually created in 1978, um, which is also the year of my birth. Uh, talking about a city that I very much consider myself a Baltimorean. And, you know, it's interesting because Baltimore is, uh, you know, Baltimore is not the city of, of, of my birth. I'm not a Baltimorean by birth. I was actually born in another part of Maryland uh, called Tacoma Park, but I'm a Baltimorean by choice because I know that uh, I came of age here. You know, I, I remember, uh, you know, I remember literally hanging out in, in, in the playground and over in Drew Hill and learning that people don't call fouls in playground basketball and, uh, you know, going to get edged up over on Saratoga uh, and learning how to roller skate. Over, over at Shake and Bake over in West Baltimore. I mean, Baltimore, and it's a place where my wife and I are raising our kids right now, right? So this this holds a very special place in my heart. And um, But the thing is, is that I also know this, is that you cannot have a thriving Maryland if you do not have a growing Baltimore and Baltimore region. And I don't say that because I'm a Baltimorean. I say that because I'm pretty good at math. This is simple mathematics that is the state's largest city as the gateway to the state of Maryland for many for many people who are looking at the state of Maryland, it's important that we're able to leverage the core assets that the state has, many of which are here within the city of Baltimore, and know that if you can have economic growth and economic stimulation in the city of Baltimore, that in turn will increase GDP for the state of Maryland. And so when we're thinking about what it means to be able to, uh, uh, you know, what it means for us to be able to go out and, 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 and leverage 
these various type of assets, it means that Baltimore must actually have a partner in Annapolis. It means that Baltimore uh, must actually be able to be able to level set its relationship with the state of Maryland in a unique way. And the powerful thing that we see about it is if you look at precedent and not even just precedent in Maryland, but precedent around the country about when the state's largest city was leveraged correctly, what was the impact, the economic impact for the rest of the state, right? So if, if you look at what's happened in Atlanta over the past 30 years, right? Where Atlanta went from a, you know, a relatively sleepy town to now a place with international airports and this, you know, literally rivaling LA for for you know economic for entertainment industry dominance and all this kind of stuff, new entrepreneurs, new businesses. Who has been the core beneficiary of that? The answer is the state of Georgia, right? Who's watched their GDP growth because you've watched this economic engine called Atlanta being able to spurn growth. We're seeing the same thing in Pittsburgh right now. Pittsburgh is on fire right now, where you're watching new businesses, new technologies. Google is moving their entire autonomous vehicle fleet into Pittsburgh because they're leveraging Carnegie Mellon and they're, Carnegie Mellon and they're leveraging Pitt. Who has been the core beneficiary of that? Pennsylvania, right? We see the same thing in Denver with Colorado, same thing with Nashville, with Tennessee, same thing with Austin. Uh, and so you're seeing how states have found ways of being able to leverage some of leverages assets for the larger growth. And so part of the goal that we're going to have within our administration is being able to make the point using data to be able to make the point saying that we have to be one Maryland. And when good things are happening in one part of a state, that's not to the detriment of another. And there are going to be things that we are going to invest in in Western Maryland that we're not going to invest in, in Baltimore because we don't have the same kind of assets to leverage. But know that the investments that we are going to make in the D.C. suburbs and the investments we're going to make in Eastern Shore and Western Maryland and Central Maryland and the Baltimore suburbs, all these investments are going to go to the benefit of one Maryland and a, and a growing and a more and a more competitive state and a more equitable state, which is exactly what we want to what we want to accomplish. Well, you you had, I guess I would say, probably an above average academic experience from uh, 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 your military academy at Forge, uh, at Valley Forge to John Hopkins University, and then you put a cherry on top at, at, at Oxford. How has that experience prepared you to be the governor of Maryland? Wow. Um, you know, one thing... Um, and I, and I think about it, I think about it twofold where um, I, so it, it's interesting. I, um, I'm the only candidate in the race that actually has an associate's degree. And people find that so interesting because they're like, you know, they're like, wait a second. And they're like, you were the first black road scholar in the history of Johns Hopkins University. <laughs> and, and the ring that you wear is from your junior college. <laughs> and that's exactly right. Right. It, it, it's 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 my foundation. And I know that had it not been for this, both everything from Johns Hopkins to becoming the first black Rhodes Scholar there to going on to Oxford University, none of those things would have been no things would have been real. And, and I think about that in context of, of how I think about a governance philosophy for the role that education is going to play. Uh, I was very proud to work on a, on a piece of legislation that passed last year, but then needed a, a, a veto override because the current governor decided to veto it. 
which was a groundbreaking piece of, uh, of education legislation, uh, zeroing on investing in our education system in a new way, where we are going to, in my administration, we are going to do things like making sure that we have free pre-K for every child in need in the state of Maryland, because all the data continues to show that 80% of brain development happens by the time a child is five years old. So why we have children who are starting school at the age of five makes absolutely no sense. Where, where we are going to invest in community schools because it's not just about curriculum changes, but if we're also not addressing things like dental care and eye care and the high number of children who are going to school with asthma, we're going to miss the point that we are going to invest in teachers of color inside of our classroom because we want our educator and our paraeducator core to actually look like and resemble the state and the children that they are teaching that we are going to make sure we're providing greater resources and, 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 and 21st century schools. So we do not have children who are walking into classrooms or educators or paraeducators who are working inside of classrooms where they can't even drink from the water fountains because we still have water. We still have uh, have infrastructure that's that's based with lead, despite the fact that we've known that lead is a neurotoxin for a century. And we still have just been amazingly class and color coded in the way that we have treated dealing with lead abatement or it's things like being able to invest in our trade programs and our apprenticeship programs. Because if a child wants to go on to a four-year school, that's fantastic. But if they want to go on to be a boiler or an iron worker or work in HVAC, that we should make sure that they have proper pathways starting as early as ninth grade for them to be able to foster that love of, of, of finding a different type of way of creating economic opportunity. Education is going to be the vehicle that is going to save us because it's both preparing our children for what they have right now. It's preparing our children to be lifelong learners so they're prepared for whatever the next stage of new inventions and new innovations is. And going back to the concept of work and wages and wealth, it's teaching our children how not just to be employees. It's teaching our children how to be employers because we want to foster a sense of entrepreneurial activity and entrepreneurial engagement for our kids. So that's how we get to asset building. That's how we get to the point where our children now have the chance to be able to own something and pass something off to future generations that they can then hold on to and they can watch leverage. Well, we, we live in a country and it's in every state of great divide. Mm. Race, technology, economic, in everywhere you look, there's a great divide. Mask. It's a great right. divide. Right. How will you collaborate with the other politicians in the state of Maryland yeah. to close that great divide? Yeah. How do we get on one page, at least on some things? <laughs> well, I think part of it is we have to we have to approach everything has to start with a place of let's make sure that this table is big enough that everyone feels like they have a voice. Right. Uh, you know, for example, one thing that I pledge is that within my administration, we are going to have an administration that's going to look like the state. And when I say an administration that looks like the state, that means it's going to be representative. That means it's going to be inclusive. That means there's not going to be only one group that's represented in it. And, and yes, you know, you know, talking about even people from different political, from different political affiliations, we are going to have an administration that's going to look like the state because I believe in that. And, and honestly, I think when it also goes back to when people say, well, how do we know that that's a priority for you or that's something you can do? 
the honest answer is it, it's 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 all I've ever done. Um, you know, I, I think about it where I was having a conversation with a group of people, a group of small business owners over in, in, in Baltimore County, for example. Um, and uh, and, you know, one thing that they were with that one thing that they were saying was, uh, you know, they're like after talking about our, my small business economic plan. And they were saying, well, you know, I really like what you're saying, but I got to tell you, uh, I'm on the other side. Um, and I said, what does that mean? And they're like, well, I'm just saying, you know, I'm just saying I'm a Republican. And, uh, and I was like, again, what does that mean? And I said, here's the, here's the reality. I said, do you know a question I never asked my soldiers when I was leading soldiers in Afghanistan? What's your political party? Right? It never came up. Never asked the question. We had one goal, one mission. My job was to bring everybody together to be able to foster a, a, a bill and a sense of what does a cohesive mission look like and a cohesive team look like so we could accomplish our one unified mission. When I was running a small business here in the here in the state of Maryland, do you know a question I never asked either my coworkers or my customers? How did you vote in the last election? <laughs> never came up. Wasn't important. When people talk about who made up the Robin Hood universe that you built, my answer was pretty simple. You know, it was it was investment bankers and it was school teachers. It was it was management consultants and it was social workers. It was everybody. And that's very much how I plan on leading within my administration is at a time of vitriol and divisiveness. We have to make sure that we're reminding ourselves of the unified goal that we're actually trying to accomplish here. We have to make sure we're putting together policy initiatives. For example, you know, I will make Maryland the first state in the country that is going to offer a service year option for every single high school graduate across the state where they will have a chance to have a paid year of service to the state of Maryland, whether it is in uh, housing or whether it is in education or whether it is in transportation, whatever it is. And for two reasons, one is because it helps to address the college affordability crisis. And the other big reason is I'm a big believer that service is sticky and those who serve together generally stay together. And I've seen that firsthand from my military, my military, uh, you know, brothers and sisters. And so this is the type of thing that I think we want to be able to foster that culture of a unified focus on accomplishing a singular goal. And that's something that I know my administration is going to pledge to actually get done. Well, Wes, you, you, you've talked about a, a lifetime of service, but you just mentioned your military service, which I, in my opinion, is the ultimate service. What did that teach you? that has prepared you for the opportunity to be the governor of Maryland? What mm -hmm. did 10 years in the military do for you? It had to impact you in ways that you couldn't have imagined. Absolutely. Uh, it, it, I mean, it, 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 it impacted me in, in every single way. And, and, and the truth is, is that, uh, you know, I, I use the things that I learned from the military every single day. Every day I use the skills that they taught me uh, about, about, about some of those skills. Yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's skills like small unit leadership and understanding that there are going to be certain people that are going to be motivated by carrots and certain more people are going to be motivated by sticks. Right. And so your job is to, is to identify which ones are which and know that, that you have to be able to motivate a collection of people who are coming from a diverse and a, and a, and a disparate part, different, disparate perspectives, but to say, but I need everyone. 
on the same sheet and I need everybody on board. It's skills like knowing that, uh, that, that in order for, for us to move strong, it means that every single person must be involved inside of that, uh, inside of that conversation. Um, it's a bit skills like how do we make sure that, that organizations run smoothly and organizations run well. And I think the most important thing, uh, you know, was this idea that, that, uh, that, you know, that again, that I learned in basic training, that we just don't leave people behind. And, 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 I, and, I, and I, I really do think about that in every single way and in every single function of government, where I, I, I want that to be how our state functions. That if we're saying, well, the state of our state is strong, but we have this jurisdiction that is repeatedly getting worse, then the state of our state is not strong by definition. Right. If we're saying that the state of our state is, 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 is that we're doing really well, but this group finds itself not, then we're not doing well. But that's something that was very much ingrained in each and every one of us that don't tell me about how your unit is doing. If I look at individual, if I look at private so-and-so and if I look at sergeant so-and-so and I look at staff sergeant so-and-so and they are repeatedly falling behind. You can't tell me your unit's doing well then. We have to make sure we have a culture that says we're going to move fast. We are going to grow. We are going to be competitive. We're going to win. But the reason we are going to win is because everybody will feel what it feels like to win. And nobody will be left behind in that process. Wes, the Waymaker community believes that every successful person has had at least one Waymaker in their life. For me personally, I've had 19. How do I know that I went back and I counted them? All right. Someone who intentionally looked at you and saw something in you that you didn't know that you had in yourself and they decided to activate it. Tell us about some of the waymakers in your life. I love that you broke it down to 19, Lewis. I love that. Um, you know, I, I, I think, uh, there have been quite a few to include family. I mean, I, it would be impossible for me to to talk about uh, who my waymakers were without talking about, you know, first off with, with family, people like my mom, um, who, uh, you know, who I think about it when, you know, she she when she witnessed her uh, her husband die in front of her and knew that she was going to raise three kids on her own. You know, that was not the life that she prepared for or expected or prayed over. Um, and I know despite all the challenges that she had and mental health challenges, et cetera, um, I, I, I always say that, you know, the greatest gift that God gave me was when he asked Joy Moore to be my mom, because just in that he was proving to me that he loved me. Um, and I think my little sister says it best when she says, you know, our mother, our mother wore sweaters so we could wear coats. Um, you know, I, I think about some of my military leaders, people like uh, uh, that at that time, Major Mike Fenzel, uh, now three star general Mike Fenzel, who was a deputy brigade commander for my unit in Afghanistan, who was not just, uh, you know, one of the most important military leaders, but also uh, was literally a groomsman of my wedding. Uh, one of the most important men in my life. I think about people like Ray McGuire, who was, you know, uh, who uh, who was uh, one of my former bosses when I left 
the White House Fellowship. And then I went to go work in, in finance and he was my boss and he became just a tremendous uh, uh, mentor and guide to me still to this day. But, um, but I think one who also played a really important role uh, is a gentleman named uh, Kurt Schmoke. And Kurt Schmoke was the former mayor of Baltimore, and I actually interned with him. In fact, I'll, I'll, sh I'll show you something real quick. Um, this is Kurt Schmoke. That's oh, wow. Kurt Schmoke when uh, when he had a full head of hair and I had a full head of hair uh, <laughs> when I was a, when I was an intern in his office at uh, at 19 years old. And the reason I show this picture is this was the last day of my second internship with him. And the thing he's pointing to right there, let me see it, Lewis, um, is that's a picture of his Rhodes Scholarship class. This was the conversation that he was telling me about the Rhodes Scholarship. And he was saying, he asked me, he said, have you ever heard of the Rhodes Scholarship? And I said, I've heard of it because I know you were one. Uh, and, he, and he was telling me, he knew about my grades and my background. He's like, I think you need to apply for it. And I left that meeting and I went back and I started thinking through it. And I went and talked to my advisor and I got the application. I applied for the Rhodes Scholarship. This was the first conversation that I ever heard someone tell me about the Rhodes Scholarship. And what I have on my wall over there is a picture of my Rhodes Scholarship class. Without this, there's no that. And he's one of my way makers. And I love having that picture and I keep it close to my desk for that exact reason, because it's a reminder uh, that on this journey, none of us are alone on this, right? We're, we all have people. Some of them are, you know, friends and family. Some of them are people who you literally had one conversation with. Uh, but in some way, shape or form are helping to change the tenor of your life in some way, shape or form are helping to change the trajectory. And, uh, and I think about what Mayor Schmoke meant to me then. I still think about it to this day. He's uh, a, a, a dear, he's now the president of the University of Baltimore. He's still a very dear friend and mentor of mine. Um, and, and how that one conversation, you know, not often are, are conversations, some of the most important conversations in your life, are they captured on camera, right? Um, that one was. And so uh, it always is. So he's, he's definitely one of the core way makers in my life. So, Wes, as, as we close out today, uh, I want you to talk to the listeners and the readers that are going to meet you through Waymaker, the poor and disenfranchised, disenfranchised uh, consumers and the middle class consumers. Tell them why you can be a Waymaker for them mm. in the state of Maryland. You know, I um, I, and I and I really appreciate that because I, I think that one thing that people have learned about me uh, and, and have said about me, I, I received the endorsement of the former county executive. Uh, I'm sorry, the cur a current county executive of Anne Arundel County, which one of the largest counties in Maryland, which was a big deal because this is one of the most coveted endorsements of this entire race so far. And he, and he, and he endorsed the candidate that had never run for office before. Right. Um, and it was a very big deal. And I think it opened up a lot of doorways and pathways for other people who now come on board since. And, and we're deeply appreciative. But he said something um, that I thought was important uh, in front of a group where he said, you know, one of the reasons that I knew 
that I was getting ready to endorse Wes. Um, he said, I knew about his vision and his values and his, and his, and his, and his experience, both lived experience and professional experience that it's uniquely positioned in, positions him to be the next governor. But he said, I've watched him in different environments. I watched him amongst corporate CEOs. I've watched him with farmers and I've watched him with educators. And he said, you know, the amazing thing, it's the same message. And he said, I never get that when I'm talking to other people who are the elected officials who are basically saying, this is what I'm going to do for you. And this one do for you. This one do for you. He's like, this message is about whether we're talking about, as you mentioned, you know, the, 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 the disenfranchised, the person who's been dealing with generational poverty or the person who is the, you know, the, 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 the you know, the, the working class, the person who is, uh, you know, who is, who is, you know, making just enough to now maybe have benefits or maybe be able to take their family out once a month for a movie, but who's watching how everything's becoming more and more expensive. Or the parent who's saying, you know, I, I'm literally having to decide about whether or not to have another child. And the number one question that my spouse and I are debating is, can we even afford it? And is that going to completely change our, the economic fortunes of our family? Or the factory worker who's trying to figure out how much longer do I have to work in order to retire comfortably and not have to put it in enormous weight and debt on my children and grandchildren. That this is about economics. This is about work and wages and wealth. This is about how can we, how can we foster a strong future for all Marylanders where we then all become the larger beneficiaries of, 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 of people's economic growth because people are willing to sacrifice if they feel like they're doing it for a reason. But if I feel like I'm sacrificing into a void, that's no longer sacrifice. That's just suffering. And so our ability to be able to have an education system that's preparing people for jobs of now and jobs of the future, our ability to be able to make sure that we have a minimum wage that's getting that's that's you know that's accelerating the fact that Maryland right now is talking about having a minimum wage at fifteen dollars in twenty twenty five. I mean that that's it's that's that's crazy thing about why how slow that is. By being able to address things like wage theft that is hurting everyday Maryland workers, by being able to address a broken childcare system, because one of the best ways we can get people back into the workforce is by being able to address childcare, and that's in, and and specifically for 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 women of color. But we're seeing the impact of a broken childcare system throughout the board because childcare right now in the state of Maryland can cost as much as in-state tuition. By being able to support MBEs and WBEs and fixing fixing broken procurement policies, because that's not just about the minority businesses. That's about how can we spur an economic growth that can actually stimulate a larger level of, 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 of economic activity. If we were to eliminate the wealth gap in this country right now, we would that would actually be worth about $1.7 trillion in GDP growth and economic activity over the next decade. So I think whether we're talking to the person who has been dealing with, who's been disenfranchised and, and dealing with economic stagnation for a very long period of time, or the middle class worker who is who is wondering why they just haven't had a raise in 15 years, you know, or the retiree, the person who was a firefighter and is now looking to leave the state because of the, because of the way we uh, because of the way we look at the pensions. 
I think all of these are joint conversations that people can understand that when we all grow, we all grow. And that's how I think our government should be centered and focused. Westmore, thank you for this. Thank you. Uh, you have enlightened uh, our audience. We appreciate you taking the time to speak to the Waymaker community. Uh, I am so proud to say I've met you. I have read about you from the other Westmore. And now to be able to have this one-on-one -on -one with you is my privilege. It's so thank you so much for speaking to the Waymaker audience. We appreciate you and we wish you the best of luck. God bless you, brother. Thank you so much for all you do. And thank you to the entire Waymaker community. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation between Lewis Carr and Wes Moore. What did you enjoy about this episode? Let us know on our social media at Waymaker Culture. Don't forget to claim your first six months of the Waymaker Journal free at waymakerjournal.com. And be sure to enter the Waymaker giveaway by going to waymakercontest.com. Subscribe to the Waymaker Fireside Chat podcast to get notifications each time we release an episode.